Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we are here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Have you heard the exciting news? Is it exciting news? Is it good news? I'm people have some doubts. Many people have doubts, but when I first heard the news, I was rather excited. I understand that is because there is gain to be had on my own end of this, but there was an announcement by our president on August 24th that his office will be making efforts to forgive up to $20,000 of federal student loan debt uh, for Pell Grant recipients and up to $10,000 of student loan debt for other qualified borrowers. Um, again, I was probably pretty excited about this. Initially, you think, wow, great, free money, fantastic, why not? But that was not the response from everybody. All right, so today we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness and what the Bible has to say about it, and we'll dive into it in just a moment. All right, so the government is giving out free money. Well, it's not really free money. No, it never is. It's like... You just don't have to pay them. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Money that you already spent on a degree that you currently have. That's correct. As people, uh, again, who would be beneficiaries of this exciting news, we thought this announcement was great. Um, I was shocked by the amount of people who disagreed, um, at, at least at first look on this. People were pretty outraged by it. I was like the so- level of outrage, I think that's what I was shocked by. Not that people disagreed with it, but the degree to which they were outraged. Yeah, I was going to say that. I wasn't surprised that there were people who agreed and disagreed because I think there's good arguments to be made for this program. Right. I think there's good arguments to be made against, against this program. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by the level of uh hate and malice that came along with uh, both sides of the argument, along with some very interestingly interpreted Bible verses. Yes, the Bible verses. Um, I I did not expect for people to really lean into this as a theological issue, but that's really where it went in the Christian world. I was also surprised about the amount of people who said the reason they disagree with it is because it's not fair because they don't personally benefit from it. Um, 
I did think that was a rather immature response just in general because there's a lot of things that happen in our world that we all don't benefit from. But nonetheless, we're not talking about that side of things. We want to actually talk about this from a biblical perspective. Is there a biblical perspective to be had? Um, Are any of the Bible verses that are being thrown around actually appropriate to use for this conversation? Or are they all pulled out of context in order to support people's political view anyways. Yeah, so there are people who are in support who state that the entire Christian faith is built on debt forgiveness and therefore uh, student loan forgiveness should be folded into that. Then there's an entirely different group of people who are saying that this kind of forgiveness, uh, it's not going to benefit our economy or our society. And in the long run, it is immoral according to what Mm -hmm. the Bible says. So there are people who are saying, according to the Bible, this is the most moral thing that our government could be doing. And then there are other people who are saying, the Bible says this is the most immoral thing our government could be doing. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get started and talk about this from the view of being for pro-debt relief. And um, really, we can understand debt relief past the idea of student loans, but um, This is the launching point of why this conversation is being had. So let's look at a few verses that we have seen being shared to validate people's views. So we're going to share just a few verses that we've seen pretty prominently on the pro-debt relief side of things. Uh, The first one comes from Deuteronomy 15 verse 1, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy yeah, it comes from Deuteronomy. So. Yeah, you know you got people feeling some kind of <laughs> way about something yeah. if they're quoting Deuteronomy. Exactly. So Deuteronomy 15.1 says, At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. There it is. Cancel the debts. Next verse, Nehemiah 10.31. Again, Old Testament. Another probably section in scripture most people aren't as familiar with. Most people can't even spell Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you know? yeah, I can barely spell it. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we will cancel all debts. Yeah, and this was part of the uh, the Old Testament uh, Torah, the law that um, God had given through Moses. And I'm not an expert in this, but essentially the way it worked is that every seven years was a Sabbath year in the same way that every seventh day was a Sabbath day. And what they did is they didn't work the land in that year. Uh, they gave and, the land rest. Yeah. And there were mm-hmm. certain debts that they forgave in that seventh year. And then right. every seventh, seventh on the 50th year, this was called the year of Jubilee, mm-hmm. and this is where they would forgive uh, mortgages and leases on land, and that land would actually go back to its original owner. And there was actually, if you were a bond servant or a slave who um, had been in servitude to somebody because of a, a large debt, uh, all of those bond servants were set to go free at that 50-year period. There's a lot of debate among uh, scholars whether Israel actually adhered to this. Um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that they did not, and if they did, they didn't do it more than like once. And so um, the practice of what they did uh, very differently from what God told them to do. But this the fact remains of what God told them to do. There was this every seven-year debt forgiveness, and then there was this every 50-year kind of major shakeup of right. debt forgiveness. Yeah, and that... Phrase is really going around to like the year of Jubilee. Um, 
And so it's helpful that you actually explain what that is and, and how that was supposed to be something that was followed um, in the Old Testament, even though it wasn't followed. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Another verse, uh, Ezekiel eighteen seven says, he does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but he gives his food for the hungry and provides clothes for the naked. Um, Matthew eighteen thirty two. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. And that comes from a parable um, that Jesus told. And it's just a small piece of that parable where um, you actually see someone who owed a lot of money and he was forgiven, but then he turned around and wanted his money from someone else that owed him. So um, you see the extension of the forgiveness of debt, but he didn't turn around and extend that forgiveness to someone who owed him money. And being a parable, that parable wasn't really about money per no, se. That was about forgiveness of sins, but that's neither here nor there, I suppose, when it comes to this argument. No. Uh, the other one is Matthew six twelve says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That um, is taken from the Lord's Prayer. So... Um, and again, again, talking about the forgiveness not, of yeah, sins. Yeah. yeah. So that's not specifically talking about debt in the way that we are trying to use these verses. Um, but that now let's not say that makes them weak arguments yet. Right. Um, <laughs> we'll save that I, for later. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're, we're showing our hand already. Um, the stance from those who are for debt forgiveness as a biblical view or mandate is that really the entire Christian faith is built around sinners being forgiven for their debt. And we see that in these verses in Matthew. Um, and we see that understanding of forgiveness being part of the culture, the essence of the Lord's people, right? Um, and that debt is is being canceled um, for people who didn't deserve it, right? They didn't earn it. They aren't owed that. Like forgiveness has been given to them, um, even though it wasn't something they earned or is merited. So by the blood of Jesus, my school debt is school forgiven. debt is forgiven. Yes, <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. So there's also um, the the Old Testament and the New Testament supports this idea of a relief of debt. I think the Old Testament actually points to it a little bit more in the way that we're seeing it in regards to school loans. Uh, New Testament, I think it's a little bit more of hermeneutical gymnastics to try and take every time we see the word debt, forgiveness of debt, and then say, look, this is a great argument for why this is the policy that should be in place. So when we look at Old Testament debt forgiveness every seventh year and every 50th year, in what ways is that kind of similar to what we're seeing now? In what ways is that different? Are there any parallels that we can draw or is this kind of apples and oranges? So as we're looking to the Old Testament, context is key as with any time we're looking to scripture in general. Uh, so borrowing and lending the way we understand it now was not a concept in ancient Israel. Like they didn't have money that they were trading things for like it just the economy was much different and so the way that we understand loans and the way we understand money and economy was just not happening in ancient Israel um they were actually an agrarian culture so 
they were working to survive. Like we don't necessarily work to survive, right? Like we're not working the fields in order to make our food or grow our food. Like we're working for the paycheck, which is for paper money. Yeah, for paper. We're working that the for government monopoly money. Tells us has value. Yes. Um and so because they were an agrarian culture that it literally the crops the the good of the crops or the bad of the crops actually made a huge difference in whether or not they were going to live or die. Um, and so because they lived in an agrarian culture, things were not always stable. There would be droughts or there would be pestilence that were eating up the crops. Like you you couldn't know for sure whether or not you were going to bring in a good crop at the end of the season and whether or not your family was going to have food on the table. So loans became a very last resort for people in order to keep their families from starving. And oftentimes people in ancient Israel didn't just have a bad year, right? Like their farming wasn't just bad for a year and then all of a sudden it goes great and they have enough, they have a surplus to pay back their loan, like a surplus to give the abundance over to whoever their lender was. Um, Oftentimes they had a bad several years in a row And for various reasons, again, they didn't receive that surplus of crops that they would have needed in order to pay back the loan. Uh, So their debt would become so enormous and so large that it was literally impossible for them to pay it back in their own lifetime. There was no bankruptcy. Like they didn't just get to file bankruptcy. Um, And their debt was not canceled when they died. If a family owed debt to anyone, it was passed on to the next generation. Like someone had to pay back that debt, which is drastically different than the way that we understand debt in American culture today. So basically what could happen is that if a family got in a bad situation, uh, basically their lineage from that point, if things went a certain way, could become essentially a slave class below whoever the lenders were. I was just going to say that next. You actually had people who were enslaved in order to pay back the family's debt. So it could be your great-great-grandparent that still owed this debt and you were literally born into this debt that was required of your family to pay back. Uh, So the debt relief passages that we find in the Torah, especially those related to the year of Jubilee, where again, at every 50 years, all debt is forgiven. These were designed to be safeguards for the poor and the marginalized. These were designed to allow people to have the opportunity to actually have a a life that wasn't dedicated to paying back debt forever. Um, It's hard to draw a direct correlation to the systems put in place in ancient Israel um, to care for the poor and disenfranchised with Biden's proposal on student loan forgiveness, right? Because what we're seeing happening in the Old Testament is these safeguards are in place because of how entrenched they can be in this system of debt. And they literally owe everything to someone else. So drawing that parallel from an entire generation of people being enslaved, really, to a whole nother family, is quite a bit different than I think what we're seeing with this loan forgiveness program that Biden is proposing. 
Yeah, I mean, there are some parallels that you can draw in that an entire generation, namely millennials, um, because of predatory uh, loan practices, because uh, what does a 17-year-old know about taking out $100,000 worth of debt at a very high interest rate um, that will follow them for the rest of their lives, and then when they die, their assets will be sold off to pay that debt. Um, there, There is some measure of like the, uh, the societal impact that student mm-hmm. loan debt has had on America and um, some will say will continue to have on America unless we do something to stem the tide. Uh, there are parallels to be made there, but by and large is, is widespread student loan forgiveness really something that is going to benefit the most marginalized in our society? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of a difficult argument to make in a lot of senses in that most people who have graduated from college um, end up in a middle-class kind of situation where they have enough food and they certainly don't have as much financial freedom as they would like and think money is tighter. Um, and certainly they aren't able to stimulate the co- the economy as much as uh perhaps previous generations would have been home ownership is is less likely among those who have you know enormous amounts of student loan debt so there are some parallels that you can draw but, uh, but the sticking point is whether this program you can equate it to something that was a, a social safety net for the most marginalized and the poorest in the society well and especially when there was nothing else there was nothing else that someone who was in debt could turn to there wasn't bankruptcy. So I'm not saying that people who have student loan debt need to all go and file bankruptcy because that's certainly not preferred in any way. Well, even if um, you file bankruptcy, you can't get rid of your student loan debt. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing you weren't planning on doing that because it's a good thing I wasn't even... planning on filing bankruptcy to, to solve <laughs> our financial issues. Uh, so scratch that. Forget what I just said. Uh, Let's talk about the other two verses from the New Testament in terms of people equating the uh, overarching uh, theme of forgiveness within the Christian faith um, and saying, because you're called to forgive, we need to forgive student debt. Yeah, and this is where it gets a a little bit fast and loose with the text, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay, so these New Testament passages, namely uh, in what Jesus had said, um, both in the Lord's Prayer and in a parable, there's this principle set up that we are forgiven and therefore we forgive. And a lot of times that is framed in kind of debt-debtor language, specifically in the parable of this person who was forgiven a, a huge debt, and then they turn around and they try to exact a very small debt from somebody else. The parable being, we have been forgiven so much, why would we... Uh, not forgive those who have sinned against us against us in far smaller ways than we have sinned against God, uh, but it's using this parable of money and then the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive uh, those who have have debt uh, against us. Um, that word debt is one word in the English language that it's translated to. Um, another one is uh, like transgressions or trespasses. Uh, it's basically talking about sin. It's not talking about money. Even still, though, there are some people who have made that connection one-to-one saying that this means that student loan forgiveness is inherently a biblical principle. Yeah, they're doing a lot of gymnastics with the text. 
There's a conceptual leap somewhere that happens. Yeah. Uh, And I think the issue, there's multiple issues with trying to do a one-to-one correlation. Certainly the idea of forgiveness um, in most specifically for this word debts, I think that's the issue is we're taking it in a very literal sense of what was happening uh, during the time of Jesus and during the time of the disciples and saying, look, we we know the word debts and the way that we know it is based on financial debts. And so therefore, wherever we find the word debts in scripture and a forgiveness of debts, let's use those verses to support this program of forgiving a very physical money type of debt. And anytime you do that, anytime you want to take a certain, a a current cultural understanding of a term and apply it back directly to scripture, you're, you're going to run into trouble. And that's because the understanding of debt just didn't happen. Like the concept was not what it is today. It certainly wasn't what it is in terms of American culture. Um, So we are really doing a disservice to the text and a disservice to even support our own argument because we have a pretty weak argument at that point. And one thing that I find very interesting is the people that I've seen using these verses um, actually aren't Christians, at least most of the ones I've seen. They are actually calling Christians and saying, hey, you guys are people of forgiveness. Here's your verses on it. Why aren't you guys acting these things out? So no matter what side you stand on that you're trying to use these verses, they're they're certainly being used inappropriately. Um, and they're also making light of the sacrifice that Jesus made to forgive people of sin, like of this of this very real situation that all mankind is sitting in um, and to try and make small of it in terms of like this monetary type of debt it it really sucks the hair out of the gospel and takes the good news out of it if all of a sudden we're just trying to correlate it to our financial debt um that is also making these verses pretty self-serving and trying to use them to support a view that we likely already had whether or not we turn to scripture yeah, I mean, it approaches uh, breaking the third of the Ten Commandments, which is not to take the Lord's name in vain. Right. And we think of, like, that means you don't use swear words. But really, it's more this kind of a thing that, uh, that the Bible is talking about, that you would assign to God something that he is mm-hmm. not claiming. Right. Uh, and to use his name to bolster some kind of self-serving argument um, when that is not what he has said. Yeah. Uh, so what can we draw from these verses? Do they have any weight in this current argument, in this current understanding of whether or not we should be for debt relief or against debt relief? I think there are certainly some overarching ethics and principles that we can view in light of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that um, is that Forgiveness is part of our ethics as Christians. It's part of like the bedrock of who we are. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a correlation of forgiveness of sin also means forgiveness of debt. Um, And I mean, the list of that kind of a thing can go on and on, right? Like everything else is forgiven too. Um, And so we have to look to scripture um, and to make sure that we don't, say it is prescribing this thing to be happening currently. Um, well, how does that phrase go? Like it's descriptive, not prescriptive. 
Right. Yeah. So there are some principles that we can draw from the description, like compassion for those who right. are really in a bad spot, that that compassion can even cost uh, a considerable amount to a large num- number of people uh, in order to have empathy for that person and to pull them out of a situation where um, they they could not have gotten out of themselves. Uh, so there's general principles like that, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that this specific uh, policy stance uh, being for it is quote unquote the Christian view, like we yeah. talked about in our last episode. Yeah, and I, I like the way that the this Hebrew Bible professor said it. His name is Roger Nam, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, he said that the Old Testament commands of debt forgiveness as embodying a spirit of compassion that help lift the poor from grinding poverty, debt, slavery, and oppression. The same spirit is embedded in the narratives like the fourth chapter of 2 Kings when Elijah gives vessels of oil to a widow so she can rescue her two children from debt slavery. The Judeans embrace a similar sentiment in Nehemiah 5, 1-13, which we referenced that verse, um, as they commit to complete forgiveness of debt because some of our daughters have been ravished. And that's in Nehemiah 5, 5. This spirit of compassion undergirds the line from most the most famous prayer of the Gospels and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So this idea of having compassion on and having forgiveness for people is absolutely uh, the bedrock of the faith, but that doesn't mean it's a direct correlation to this particular policy. Right. So those are the pro-student loan debt forgiveness verses and views. Do you want to take a look at the anti-debt relief stance and what Bible verses are they using? Yes. So they we're going to go through four of them. Um, again, we just tried to find the most popularly used ones um, and try and list them and then hopefully analyze them um, as best we can. It's funny, so, as you look at them, it's like literally like someone like sat down on like Bible Gateway and, and like searched Googled, the word debt and then yes. picked the five or six verses that they felt uh-huh. fit their view. It's pretty bizarre. Uh, Romans 13 verses 7 through 8 says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who has loved another has fulfilled the law. Boom. No debt forgiveness for you. You exactly. pay it. Next one, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one. And this is the big one. This is the one that people have been using on this side. Oh, and this is, okay, I'm not going to make comments until we're at the commenting part. So let me just <laughs> read the verse. The wicked person borrows but does not pay back. The righteous person is generous and they give. So if you accept these Biden bucks... You are wicked. Exactly. No commentary yet. You want to read the other verse? Ecclesiastes 5.5. 5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Okay? So just don't go to college if you can't pay for it. If you can't pay for it. Okay, and then Romans... Or I'm sorry, not Romans. Numbers 32... If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So if you signed at the bottom line of that student loan agreement, then by the word of the Lord, you must abide by what you agreed to. Exactly. 
Done. So, this has become the more prominent Christian view to um, the Biden loan forgiveness program. I mean, particularly it's, among conservative evangelicals, there are some outside that that sphere that um, there's a considerable number of from, them that are on the opposite side. But yes, among but the from circles what that I we run could in, find this. This was the side of things that had more to say about it online. Got it. Okay. So I guess in terms of number of articles and tweets and opinions, this was the side that I saw more of that identified as Christians. That is true. Conservative evangelicals are nothing if not prolific. Yes. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> uh, we say as we, we publish stuff all the time. <laughs> I know. Goodness. We're really back in the center corner here. So yeah. also... Uh, one of the biggest, I mean, not the biggest Christian leader, right? That's not the best way to phrase it. But even Albert Albert Moeller had shared that he took on this view that this is this is not the Christian view to support this program. That yeah. it's actually an immoral thing that we are doing and an unethical thing that we are doing if we're supporting this loan forgiveness program. Yeah, and Albert Moeller's kind of like the voice of what is the Christian worldview in a lot of conservative circles. Right. Uh, Dave Ramsey similarly came out yeah, against it. Yeah, he said, you just need to pay back the money you owe. Yeah, so he, was- he did make a concession. He said, it's, n- it's not immoral for you to accept the forgiveness now that now that it's been declared but he said you really shouldn't because this policy stance is unwise and in some senses immoral hmm. but you aren't necessarily immoral if now that it's been put out it. there that you accept it okay but then he said but you really shouldn't so yeah. he kind of you know there was some nuance to what he said about the morality of it uh he didn't necessarily say that you're a bad christian if you accept it uh you're just a worse christian than he is Aye, aye, aye. Okay, so let's look at uh, the first verse, which was Romans 13. Um, and even Numbers 30, I think, kind of fit in the same analysis. That both of these verses, um, they admonish that we should not take on debt. That if we have no intention to pay it back, we should not be signing the paperwork. We should not be taking on the debt. If we already know that this is not an obligation we're going to hold ourselves to. Uh, and so there certainly is an element of a moral principle as Christians that we should hold ourselves to, right? Um, that we should not be agreeing to something that we have no intentions of actually upholding our end of the agreement on. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you can apply that to this in some ways. But one thing that I do also want to point out is these admonishments that are coming from scripture are to Christians. So this is also saying this is the Christian way that you should be living. This is um, like as holy ones who are set apart, who are the people of God. This is a way that you should be living. Now, is it wisdom for others to be true to their word as well? Of course. But too often, I think we like to take the Bible verses that are specifically meant for the people of God and specifically meant to say this is how the people of God should operate and this is the way that they're supposed to live their lives. And then we want to also put that same standard back onto non-believers. And then we're upset and outraged that they're not acting like Christians when they're not Christians. 
Yeah, I mean, but there is a sense in which there are people who take on large amounts of debt with no real plan or intention of ever paying that back, and they're just wildly irresponsible. They just charge it, and then, um, like, they just have no real, actual, tangible intention of paying that back. And I think whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, that is something immoral. Uh, to do yeah but to put a whole standard uh like intrinsically i hope we know that's wrong but in terms of scripture it's telling christians you ought not to live this way um and so i understand it's a moral principle but is it necessarily something that we are upholding everyone to understand and to carry out in their lives no we're not upholding it but there's a difference between accepting that non-christians aren't going to uphold that and then uh supporting subsidizing someone's immorality okay i'm with you um but the the question becomes is the 18 year old who ended up a hundred thousand dollars plus in student loan debt is that the situation as someone who is an adult who racks up all kinds of debt and has no real intention of paying for it or were they doing that kind of on the promise that you know they got sold to as someone who's 18 years You know what, 18 years old, your brain isn't even fully developed. Yeah, your brain isn't fully developed until you're like 25, 26 years old. Your prefrontal cortex, your critical thinking, it's just not there. And they got sold this idea that if you just sign on the dotted line, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Everybody takes out loans. As soon as you graduate, you're going to get a job. You're going to pay these off. It's going to be no big thing. And this is just what everybody does. And so you say, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, is is that the same as the person who is maliciously taking money with no intention of ever returning it? Um, so, I mean, were there some kids that did that and that was their mindset? I mean, maybe. Um, or was the system by and large predatory? And I think that even people who are against student loan forgiveness would concede that the student loan program is predatory and in some senses oppressive. Uh, their... Um, solution for that would be like you just shouldn't have got into it though and so there's there's kind of the nuance there there is an immorality to taking large sums of money with no intention of paying it back the question is whether that's actually happening with 18 year olds who are going to you know a private university that they they were excited to get into right but that nuance becomes less of a theological issue i mean it's not completely non i know it's not but, irrelevant mm-hmm. but i'm just saying now that we're talking even about the intentions of a 17 year old and trying to apply these verses, like what were your intentions behind this? You shouldn't have anything forgiven because you just, I guess had no intentions to pay it back. Right. Like the argument just, it has a lot of holes in it. So let's look at uh, Psalm 37 verse 21. And let me read it again because uh, this is one that I think is probably one of the largest verses being used. Um, on this side of the argument. So it says the wicked person borrows, but does not pay back. The, the righteous person is generous and gives. So many people wielding this verse around are basically saying, um, if you borrowed and you're not giving anything back, then you are wicked. Um, but it's, it's really frustrating that that's how this verse is being used. Um, especially when you look at Psalm 37 as like an entire unit. Um, this is, and this is verse 21. So it's pretty far down into the Psalm. 
and it's just being plucked right out of there and being used uh, to say this is why you should be against student loan forgiveness. Um, And what is often being lost in hurling this verse as a defense for someone's political view is, again, it's not even taking into account the whole psalm, but it's also not taking into account the genre. Um, Psalms is a compilation of poems and songs. So it's not just a list of commands that we are supposed to be following. Um, And this particular psalm is talking about those who are suffering at the hands of the wicked. It's the wicked people who are borrowing and not paying back. Uh, And this is a statement about what the wicked people are doing, not a command to make sure you pay back your loans. It's just saying, hey, wicked people don't pay back their debts. Like it's just a statement of who these wicked people are that are being described in this song or poem. Um, And what's happening now in people who are using this as an argument, they're equating the wicked person in this psalm to someone who is struggling to pay back their crushing amount of school loan debt. Yeah, so by the same extension of the way they're interpreting this verse, they would say the person who is in need of the every seven-year debt relief that was supposed to be established in ancient Israel or the 50 years of Jubilee, they're not paying back their debt. So – Ipso facto, they are wicked, which that kind of goes against right. scripture. Like if your interpretation of one piece of scripture contradicts another piece of scripture, then something's wrong somewhere. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and really the way people are understanding it is this is this is a cruel misunderstanding of Psalm 37 because Psalm 37 is all about God caring for the person who is being mistreated and oppressed. Like, that's what this whole psalm is about. And this particular verse is really a great example of, again, someone just Googling, literally, verses against debt. Enter. Here you go. And not even taking the time to read anything else, just saying, look, people who don't pay their debt are wicked. And therefore, if you are for this school loan forgiveness program... According to the Bible, you are wicked. I mean, on both sides, like there's some pretty good like stump speech material. Like, yikes! God forgives debts. We should forgive debts on the one side, and the other side, people who don't pay back their loans are wicked. And so, Joe Biden and his administration are wicked for this program. Right. So, like in the political punditry, like if you're just pulling random verses, like both sides have some pretty good oh, rhetoric right. in terms of like how it it stirs people. But is it what the Bible's saying? Well, on both sides, eh, blah, 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 not exactly. Not exactly. Yeah. So, in terms of a biblical response to President Biden's policy, is there one? Uh, I think overall we can look at Scripture and see forgiveness of debt is a theme, particularly for those who are poor and marginalized. Like that is a theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are supposed to care for these people. We are supposed to um, even have some measure of safety nets for them and to be mindful of the situations that they're in and as a society care about them. Um, But the question related to this understanding of scripture as to whether or not this particular school loan forgiveness plan falls in line with that, we then have to ask, like, does this program care for the poor and marginalized? Um, Many are making the argument 
that it really isn't because it's just a regressive redistribution of wealth from poor, non-college educated taxpayers um, to disproportionately privileged college educated workers with much higher future earning potential on average. Um, And so I think this then becomes more of an economics question and not that theology has nothing to say about this, but to make it only a theological question, we're missing so many other elements of this conversation. I think the frustrating thing is that Christians, by and large, are not agreeing on the things that we should all be agreeing on. Mm-hmm. Like if you look that to we a care holistic, about yeah, that the if you look at the Bible holistically, that there is this ethic in which. Uh, Christians ought to be generally supportive of programs that uh, lift up the marginalized, social programs that are safety nets to people who are at the greatest risk of um, being put in in really bad situations that even those social programs, we should be okay with those costing us in, in a certain sense. Like in the Old Testament, to have those debts canceled, like somebody had to absorb that cost. And for us in, in our governmental system, that comes through tax paying and how the the cost of that will be distributed you know, up and down the uh, the economic ladder of people's income is something that's hotly debated uh, among uh, Democrats and Republicans. But there, there should be a sense in which, yeah, if this is going to lift up the lowest among us, even if it's going to cost something to those who are not in that situation, that that's something that we should be generally supportive of. I think that's something that all Christians can agree on. And then once we get to that point of agreement, which seems to be a lot to ask— We can then sit down and say, all right, this specific policy, let's wrap. Is this helping with that goal? Right. And so that's the thing that we should be fighting over and not the thing about whether people should or shouldn't be helped. Yeah. Is this this the best way to help the most marginalized among us? Well, and... And and that's a real question that I'm kind of ambivalent about, exactly. and I think a lot of economists are ambivalent about. Well, and that's the problem, too, is that econom- we have too many economists armchair experts. Like, everyone wants to act like they're a theological expert or they're an expert in economy. Now, we on this podcast are not going to give you the answers to economy because that is not what we studied. That is not our area of expertise. Hey, I took one introductory economics class in, that makes in you undergrad. Like Certainly. I don't know, a decade ago now. Yeah. And yeah. it's it w- not anything you're actively pursuing. It was now. a lot of charts and graphs yes. and there was some math involved. And I'm sure you know exactly how to analyze this policy, its long term and short term effects on society at large now, right? I mean, I've done some Absolutely. reading. I've done enough reading to um, understand that when it comes to uh, kind of like the the debate between trickle down economics, mm. uh, uh, supplier side economics, where you give tax breaks to those at the top of the food chain with the idea being that they, now that they have those tax breaks, they have a little bit more liquidity. They can use that to invest in building, you know, companies and organizations that are then going to employ people. They're going to be producing goods and services at a higher rate, and that's going to stimulate the economy. That's one philosophy. And then there's this more bottom-up approach of where you invest more of the money 
uh, in kind of a, a, a social structures that are meant to lift up the lowest among us, and that comes at the expense of higher taxes for those at the top of the food chain. Now, there's a, I mean, this is basically a defining demarcation between Democrats and Republicans, and has been for you know decades at this point. Uh, but the thing about that is that if you talk to one PhD economist and you talk to another PhD economist, they will argue till they're blue in the face which one actually benefits the most number of people. And so in that sense, I'm a little bit ambivalent. Um, I mean, I certainly have my leaning one way or the other. Um, but really, that's the question at hand. I feel like here, the question at hand isn't isn't that uh, that this is this isn't a problem that we should be concerned with, or it is a problem we should be concerned with. The question at hand is how do we rise to this challenge that is causing a problem for a, a large number of Americans, and that's something that all Christians should be worried about. Right, and the solution is not to just don't care about it, and I think that's what some people are saying. Like that's their problem; it's not our problem. But like you said earlier, it really has become a generational issue. And if you just look on this, at the stats of people who are completely drowning in student loan debt um, because the expectation or even in many ways what was promised to them at signing on this dotted line is that you move forward into this school and you're going to get this degree and you're going to make the kind of money that you need to make in order to pay off this loan, but that's not at all happening. Um, Certainly on a personal level, we are experiencing that too, but there's a lot more details and conversation that needs to be had around the issue at hand. And there is an issue at hand. Again, like we said, an entire generation um, is struggling with this issue, which does make it a societal problem. Because if is one or two people, then maybe that's not a big deal. But when you have hundreds of thousands, even millions of people that are struggling with this, um, it does become a problem that should be addressed in a in a large scale solution. Um, but again, the trouble that we're seeing with this conversation is people are trying to wield verses and scripture in order to support whether or not we should even care about this problem. Yeah, I mean, I don't fault anybody for feeling strongly for this or feeling strongly against it because I think there are are reasons on both sides to Certainly. to feel that way. This specific program we're talking about of Biden's ten to twenty thousand dollars debt relief uh, for people who are making under one hundred twenty twenty five thousand dollars a year. Um, there, I think there's there's arguments to be made. I'm not seeing a lot of those arguments being made on a very like nuanced and intelligent level. Um, where I do fault people is what I'm seeing most of, which is plucking Bible verses out of context to support your economic view, which is not a theological view. It's not necessarily theologically informed in any kind of a rich way. It's economically informed, and then it's and theologically then shoehorned into yeah. whatever you wanted it to be anyways. That's where I have the problem. It's it's the sloppy hermeneutics I feel like I've been seeing equally on both on sides. On both sides. I mean, That's we went through the verses. Mm-hmm. We went through the verses and said, look, this side is not doing it well either. Um, both verses are taking verses uh, grossly out of context and interpreting them in a way that makes absolute no sense when you look at them um, holistically in 
in where they're spotted into scripture. Uh, and so we have to allow our biblical principles to guide all of our perspectives. And I think that is even true of this particular case, but we can't prescribe scripture um, to our political view, especially when it's a view that we already hold, regardless of what scripture says. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I don't know if there is a quote unquote biblical answer to whether this is a good program or a bad program, but I think there are a lot of unbiblical answers to that question. And at the very least, those are the ones that we should avoid. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.